0: to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Micah, the prophet Micah. It's a minor prophet. It's in the Old Testament. Um, if you can find Jonah and Nahum, I don't know if those will help. Uh, well I'll give you a few moments to get there. Um, in my Bible, it's on page 7, 774, if that helps at all uh, with you finding the book of Micah, but just give you a few moments to get there. And so about two months ago, two, three months ago, I was invited to a meeting at an organization here in Medina called Feeding Medina County. Uh, Some of you maybe are aware of this organization. Um, This organization feeds uh, elementary-age kids. They provide meals for kids uh, on weekends. They also provide some food, uh, meals for seniors uh, in our county. And I was invited to a meeting because uh, during the school year, there's about 1,100 kids, uh, elementary age kids here in Medina County, that on the weekend, they get a bag of food on Friday, the Friday of the week, the end of the week, they get a bag of food with three meals in it. And these are kids that are on free or reduced lunches, and those meals, those, that food gets them through the weekend. And that's about eight months of the school year, they get that. But then you have the summer months. And they're not at school. So what happens? They don't get their bags. So last year, Feeding Medina County uh, piloted a program with a church in Medina. And they said, could you be a location, a spot that on a Saturday during the summer, that families who are part of this program called Weekender Bag Program could come to your church and pick up their bags and take it home. And so they did this last summer. And uh, it really went well. And so they were trying to branch out their reach to not just Medina, but Brunswick, Wadsworth, and just spread out cloverleaf. And right now in Brunswick, there's 200 kids, elementary age kids, that receive these bags every weekend. But again, during the summer, they don't get it. So we were invited, I was invited as a pastor of a church in Brunswick to be a part of a meeting just to hear about the program, to tour their warehouse, to see what they do. They, this is all new food. I should say that too. This isn't just donated food that people in the, in the county donate. This is purchased. Um, $15,000 worth of food is given out every weekend to these kids. And uh, it's all new food. They package it up in bags. And so when I heard this, I just said, we can do something. We can help. So what we're doing is this summer, uh, we are going to be a location here in Brunswick that kids from Brunswick, families from Brunswick that sign up to be a part of this summer. It's called a summer weekender bag program. Uh, will show up here uh, during a certain hours on a Saturday, probably morning, and they'll pick up their food. And uh, what we need, though, is Volunteers. Uh, we need people that will maybe help uh, if you're interested in packing the food down at Feeding Medana County they need a lot of volunteers to pack the bags Uh, we need some volunteers to hand out the bags on that Saturday Uh, we also might need some volunteers because of these family situations they might not be able to get here on a Saturday uh, because maybe mom or dad has to work or maybe they don't have a car that works so they can't get here so what we want to do is we want to be able to say to them we'll get the food to you We'll drive it to your house and drop it off. And and we really look at it as an opportunity to serve and bless our community. And uh, so in your program, there's information about it. And there's an email, uh, Karen Fertel uh, at hopebrunswick.org. Karen is our office manager. Uh, If you are interested in being involved in any level of this ministry, again, even volunteering, they're always looking for volunteers at Feeding Medina County. Uh, You can serve uh, when they pack the bags. They have other opportunities to serve and involved. If you just email her, uh, you can maybe, you have a smartphone, you can do it now uh, before you leave. Uh, But we just need to know, like who's interested. We are having an information meeting for those who are interested on May 21st in between this service and our 11 o'clock service right in room five, which is out these doors to your left, uh, just for those who are interested in getting involved um, in this type of outreach. Um, So anyway, I think it's a great opportunity for us as a church body to tangibly serve our community um, and serve uh, families. And so uh, this is something we're doing uh, brand new uh, this summer. So uh, hopefully you've had a chance now to find Micah and uh, you have it open there. Before you. Several years ago, I read a book. um, The book is called What's So Amazing About Grace by Philip Yancey. Maybe some of you have read this book or read any of his books. He's a wonderful author. but in his book, he outlines grace and what's so amazing about grace. What is significant about grace? And what? how does the church offer grace to those who need it, who need to experience it? And so he outlines it in a number of ways in his book. But one of the stories, he shares a lot of stories of, how, of grace and, and the challenges of grace and showing grace and how people uh, maybe don't want to receive grace or think about grace. But... One of the stories that I'll I'll never forget was he shares a true story of a social worker who was interacting with a prostitute. And this prostitute was sharing with the social worker uh, things she had been involved with. She was sharing with the social worker things she had made her daughter be involved with because of her lifestyle. And the social worker really was at a loss, just kind of throwing everything she could at this woman just to try to help with resources and help and counsel and just trying to, how do I come alongside her and resource her and help her and care for her and, and really had just kind of thrown everything at her, like all these things. And, and it didn't seem like anything was like sticking, like maybe this would help or maybe this would help or this would help. And, and so the social worker just kind of at the end, so to speak, says, have you ever tried church? Like maybe church, like have you looked up a church in our community that maybe you could go to and maybe they could help you and they could love you and they could care for you and your daughter and, and, you know, have you ever thought about that? And what Philip Yancey says is the woman looked right back at the social worker and said these words, church, why would I ever go there? I was feeling terrible about myself. I was already feeling terrible about myself. And she said, they just make me feel worse. I don't know how you process that, what you feel about that. There's a lot of things we could say, well, maybe she had a bad experience. Um, Maybe she didn't give it a long enough time. Uh, She's not speaking for everyone's experience. And I would agree with all those things. what What I think the reason Philip Yancey records this story in his book isn't to cause us to come up with why she maybe felt that way as the church, the big church, so to speak. But I would think the reason Philip Yancey records this story is to cause us to contemplate and think and reflect what is the church to be about? What is the purpose of church? What are we to be about? What, is, well, what are to what are people who are on the outside, so to speak, looking in? What, are they, what is their perception of the church? And I'll be honest, as a pastor, this is hard for me to even think about. Like, this is hard to read. I can come up with all these objections, all these reasons why, but then to just sit back and say, okay, can I use this story, this real example of, to say, maybe we've missed the mark as it relates to church. Maybe We've gotten off track at times with what we're to be about. The perception, so to speak, what people think about us people who are outside, think of the church. And what are we to be about? And I want us to maybe, I want to put the question another way. What does God require of Hope Church? What does God say, this is what I want you to do. If you're one of my followers... Whether you've been following me for two weeks, 10 years, 30 years, what do you want? What does God require of Hope Church? What does God require? Not, not what we say this book says or that book says or this church model or that church model, but what does God require? What does the Bible say God requires, asks of his people? This is the question we're going to be thinking about over these next three weeks. What does God require of us? As it relates to the church, as it relates to Hope Church. Not the church down the road, but a Hope Church. What does God ask of us? And I want us to use a text in Micah and what we find are some answers. I think God requires us to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. And we find these words literally embedded in this minor prophet called Micah. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Let me read these words for us. He has showed you, O oh man, what is good. God has revealed it. This is what you're to do. This is how you're to live. And what does the Lord require of you? What is God asking of you? What is he saying? This is how you should live as one of my followers. What, are you, what should you do? And Micah sums it up in this way. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Sums it up. Kind of summing up the Old Testament. Summing up what what is the essence of what God is asking of us as his followers. To act justly, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. This is what we're going to talk about over these next three weeks. We're going to live in Micah, this prophet that we don't get too much. But, but, so before we get there, I want to introduce you to Micah because many times we don't find ourselves in the minor prophets. Um, has anyone read the book of Micah? Studied? The, well, a few of you. Okay, that's good. <laughs> a lot of hands are down. But so, so we don't get to these minor prophets a lot, and they're called minor. Let me say this. They're called minor not because of the weight of content or the the, the what's with the significance of what they include. They're called minor prophets because of length. So so Isaiah is a major prophet, and it's because major because you're talking 50 plus chapters. Whereas Micah, we're talking about six. And other minor prophets, even shorter than six chapters. So it's not uh, content where we get minor, it's length. And and so Micah is is considered a minor prophet. And Micah was a country boy. He grew up in a rural village, if you will. He didn't grow up in the city. And we actually learn about Micah in chapter 1, verse 1. So if you just turn a couple chapters back to the, to the left, the beginning of the book, here's what it says about Micah chapter 1. Here's what it says. We're introduced to our author. It says, the word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns. These are the kings that he prophesied during their reigns. So three kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Maybe you've heard of Hezekiah, more of the well-known king in that list there. The kings of Judah the vision he saw concerning Samaria in Jerusalem. So, so we're told that this, the word of the Lord came, God's spirit spoke to Micah of Moresheth. That's, the, that's where he lived in Moresheth. That is a little village, a little nothing of a town, south, about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. That's where he lived. Maybe some think he was a farmer or grew up on a farm. But what the the significance of his city or his town, I should call it, is that there was a major highway that went from Jerusalem down to Egypt that passed through his town. So Mike is growing up in this town and is meeting all these people that are passing through his city or his town from the city of Jerusalem or from Egypt going up to Jerusalem. So he's getting a sense of what's happening in the city just 20 miles away from him. And he's this country boy that that over time develops a love for the city. And not only a love just for the city and the buildings and the the pace of it and the the, the people there, but he develops a love and a passion for those who are being oppressed in the city. Because the times Micah is living, there is great upheaval, there's wars. The Assyrian army has come in and they've, they've wiped out the northern kingdom. Right now, Israel's divided in the two kingdoms, northern kingdom and southern kingdom. He's living in the southern kingdom, in Judah. Samaria is the northern kingdom, and the Assyrians have come in and wiped out the northern kingdom. And now they've taken off, they've taken captives, they've killed people, and now refugees. That's a big topic, right, today? Refugees? What to do with them? Uh, So now refugees are flooding from the north. They're escaping war, they're escaping death, and they're flooding into the south. And now all these people in the south are like, what do we do? How do we take care of these people? Is it our responsibility to take care of these people? So you have death, you have suffering, you have the rich who are saying to the poor, we want your land and we're just going to take it because we're rich and we can do what we want. So there's all of this oppression. There's all of this persecution. There's all of this injustice that is happening in this region, and no one is saying anything about it. And the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Micah, and he says, I'm going to be a voice for the voiceless. I'm going to say something about this, because this is wrong. And Micah preaches, he prophesies. He says some things to, to the rich. He says some things to the people about injustice, and he addresses it. Before we get to justice and what does it look like to do justice, we need to ask the question, what is it? What is justice? How do, what are the questions we need to ask as it relates to justice? If we're going to do it, what is it? And we need to understand justice. Well, first, we need to think, address how we think about justice. Many times we think of justice in this way. What has someone done wrong? And then, what is the punishment or the crime that, or the, the punishment or the sentence that fits that wrong? What have they done wrong? And then, what is the appropriate punishment or consequence for that wrong? We might even use the language we, we ask was justice served there? Did the punishment fit the crime? And, and sometimes that's the only grid we look through to understand justice. And that's a grid we can look through, but I want us to look through the biblical grid of justice. What does God say about justice? What does the Bible say about justice? And we need to understand that as we dig into this concept of justice, there is a direct connection between justice and righteousness. They are the exact same word to describe God as being just And God is being righteous. The the common, the most used Old Testament word for just means straight. The most common New Testament means equal. In a sense, they both mean right or to make right. And what we're saying is that God is a righteous God and He is setting things right. The way they're meant to be. God is a God of restoration, a God of redemption. So when we're saying that God is just, we are saying that He always does what is right. When we think of now, you and I, who have now, as we've come into salvation, as we've experienced uh, saving grace, we say we are now clothed in the righteousness of God. So that means that we who were not in right standing with God are now in right standing with God because of Jesus. So I think the better questions to ask as it relates to the biblical concept of justice is this idea of what harm has been done and what is the healing that we can bring. Where, what is the hurt that has happened? Where is the brokenness? What brokenness is taking place? And how do we bring healing to make it right? So let me, just, let me, let me try to illustrate what this kind of restorative justice, this biblical concept of justice looks like. So Mary Johnson... In February 12, 1993, her son, Laraman, who was 20 years old at the time, uh, was killed um, by a 16-year-old young man named O'Shea Israel. O'Shea got 25 years in jail for the murder of Laraman, uh Mary Johnson's 20-year-old son. And over the months, years of grief and mourning, the loss of her son, someone handed Mary Johnson a poem. And in the poem, there was the, the author of the poem was talking about these two women in heaven. And uh, these two women in heaven were having a conversation. And both women were wearing, had halos. Again, it's a poem. <laughs> but they're wearing halos. And their halos had a blue tint to them. Which meant, in this poem, that both women had experienced loss while they were on earth. And as you read through the poem, you realize that the two women talking back and forth, one is Mary, the mother of Jesus, and one is the mother of Judas. And in that moment, as Mary Johnson is reading through this poem, she realizes she was not the only mother in this story. She realizes for the very first time that she's never really thought much about O'Shea, Israel's mom. And so that poem propelled her on a journey. A journey towards forgiveness, towards O'Shea, Israel, and a journey towards forgiveness of Carol Green, the mother of O'Shea, Israel. Mary Johnson said this. Suddenly, I had, a, I had this vision of creating an organization to support not only the mothers of murdered children, but also the mothers of children who had taken a life. So, Mary Johnson started an organization, a nonprofit organization called From Death to Life. This is a picture of Mary Johnson on the right, Carol Green on the left, and O'Shea Israel. From Death to Life is an organization that is dedicated to ending violence through healing and reconciliation between families of victims and those who have caused the harm. What a beautiful picture, isn't it? Of redemptive justice. This is what we're talking about. What is the harm that's been done and how do you bring healing? Not only to the victim, but to the victimizer. Not only to the oppressed, but the oppressor. Because we believe in a God who makes all things, wants to make all things right. And it's very interesting, even. I shared a little bit about Mary Johnson's story in a message on forgiveness uh, several weeks ago, but Mary Johnson and O'Shea Israel are neighbors, they live right next door to each other. It's amazing. Only by the grace of God does this happen. And this is the kind of the restorative justice that we are talking about today. The authors of the book, When Helping Hurt, Stephen Cobet and Brian Finkert, say this, when people look at the church, when people look at it, he said when they look at the church, he says they, they say they should see the very embodiment of Jesus, He says, when people look at the church, they should see the one who declared in word and deed to the leper, to the lame, and to the poor, his kingdom, that his kingdom is bringing healing to every speck of the universe. Friends, when people see Hope Church, this is what I want them to see. This is what we want them to see. The embodiment of Jesus. This is what we want them to see. And we have an opportunity through our very lives, the way we live every single day, we have an opportunity to bring justice into very broken world, systems, structures, relationships. We have an opportunity because we believe in a God of justice and righteousness to be these people that bring it through our very lives and our actions. So what does it look like for us to do justice? I want to talk about it in three ways. I want to talk about it with our eyes, our hands, and our hearts. Our eyes, our hands, and our hearts. When we think about our eyes... We have to be willing, if we're going to be people that do justice, we have to be willing to see injustices. We have to be willing to look at them and feel them, not just say, I see this happening, I, I see this injustice, but we have to be willing to feel it, the weight of it, to grieve it. And then be moved, and we'll get to the moving, but first we have to see it, and it's so interesting because Micah Micah writes in such a way, again, he he lived or he prophesied during three kings, but he doesn't, his book is not written in chronological order, he's not saying, well, when this king was alive, I said these things, and this king these things, and this king these things, but it's more circular. It's all the same message over and over and over again in different ways throughout his book. And, and when he, he talks about injustice, he's bringing it to the forefront to say, you need to look at these things, be confronted by these things. Chapter two of Micah, Micah chapter two, verse two, verse one, it says, woe to those who plan iniquity to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. And here's the injustice. They covet the fields and seize them. They just take them. I'm just gonna take this. In houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance. They're stealing from people. And people are saying, not, not even blinking an eye at it. Like, it's no big deal. Just keep going. Don't, don't ruffle any feathers. Just, it's okay. But Mike is saying, look at this. This is happening, he's saying. And I'm not saying these are the same injustices that we're seeing today, but Mike is saying, you need to see these things. And then in chapter 3, again, just bringing it to the forefront. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Then I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, Should you not know justice? This is an indictment on the leadership. He's saying you should know this. As a leader, you know God's heart for the oppressed, for the poor, for the alien, for the the poor. Like, you should know this. You who hate good and love evil. And the next, it's so graphic what he just describes. Next, who tear the skin from my people, In the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. The language is incredibly graphic. He's trying to drive home a point like, what is happening? You are killing people. You're destroying people. And you're just letting it happen. For some of us, as we think about injustices, you're honestly just maybe unaware of realities in our world today, in our community today. Human trafficking. We hear about that, and we can think that's something that takes place in other countries. Thailand. Thailand kind of jumps to the top of it. Cambodia. Friends, just last year, there were 1,363 calls to the human trafficking hotline in Ohio. And when they say those, that many calls, like that is the, these, these calls have substance to them. This isn't someone just called and it was a, you know, that's not a human trafficking issue. But th- these stats are like, these are the calls that matter. And do you know where Ohio ranks as it relates to the amount of calls, as it relates to states? fourth. So it's not just something in another country. It's here. What about racial inequalities? What about gender inequalities? What about slavery? You want to say slavery, really? Like that's still happening today? Based on statistics on the International Justice Missions website, which is a ministry that seeks to rescue boys and girls, people out of slavery. This is all they do. Based on their statistics, there's more than 2 million involved in the sex trade, children, involved in sex trade today. 2 million involved in the sex trade have been sold into slavery today. These are realities. Are we willing to look at these things? Are we willing to face these things? Are we willing to feel these things? Or do we just say that that those things aren't, that's not my experience, that's not what I. Are we willing to look at them and feel them and get close to them? Are we willing to learn and ask people and ask people out in our neighborhood who maybe are from a minority perspective and just to say, what has been your experience? And ask people about their experiences. What they've been through. What they experience every day. Are we willing to feel these things? I want to, in a moment, I want to show us a video clip. And it's from the movie Amazing Grace. Which is the William Wilberforce movie. Uh, Many of you may have read books about him. Biographies about him. And he was a man who fought for the abolishment of slavery in England. And I want us to watch this clip. How he helps people in England get close to the issue of slavery, and to feel it. So watch this clip.
1: Gentlemen, would you stop the music, please? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you have enjoyed our little tour of the estuary. Uh, But now our sergeant is almost over, I have a confession to make. This trip wasn't purely arranged to reward those MPs who have supported me in the past year, nor am I the only sponsor. She do not bear. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a slave ship, the Madagascar. It has just returned from the Indies, where it delivered 200 men, women, and children to Jamaica. When it left Africa, there were 600 on board. The rest died of disease or despair. That smell is the smell of death. Slow, painful death. Breathe it in. Breathe it deeply. Take those handkerchiefs away from your noses. There now. Remember that smell. Remember the Madagascar. Remember that God made men equal.
0: Are we willing to feel it, to get close to it, smell it, if you will? Are we willing to put ourselves in someone else's experience, put ourselves in someone else's shoes, Are we willing to grieve with people that are experiencing great loss? Are we willing to do all those things? Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to see things through the lens of the Bible, lens of the kingdom of God. When things happen in our world, in our nation, injustices, are we willing to look at it not through our experience grid or a certain political party's grid, but are we willing to say, what does the Bible say about these things? Are we willing to look at all people as made in the image of God and move accordingly? It's going to take our eyes, seeing things, feeling things. It's also going to take... Our hands. It's going to take our hands. Micah 6 verse 8. Again, it says this. It says, He has showed you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. He's saying you have to act on it. You have to do something. It's not just enough to see it. All throughout his book, he's talking about things are happening. You need to see these things, but it says it's not just enough to see it and feel it. You have to do something. You have to put your hands to it. You have to work. You have to move towards it. You have to get close to it. You have to step into it. You have to act justly. You have to do justice. Not just talk about it, but move into it and bring hope and bring healing and and hopefully bring restoration and justice to. What's broken, and so so? What does this look like? It'll look like it'll look different for each of us, depending on this, the the opportunities God gives us to step into injustices. It won't look the same for all of us. But let me just maybe give you one a few examples of what this might look like, or is looking like, even today. And and so recently, uh, last year, I should say, last year there was a there was a few women um, that were arrested allegedly for prostitution in our area here, and. There was a variety of responses uh, through social media about these arrests. Uh, one of the responses was this. Uh, a person shared in social media, they said, great job, we don't need this in our community, and they ended their comment by saying, thanks for taking out the trash. Thanks for taking out the trash. Friends, what does the church, what does it look like for us to do justice? As relates to women that are arrested for allegedly prostitution. What does it look like to bring this restorative justice into this? I'm thankful that before this arrest, there was a team of women here at Hope that had been reaching out to these women. Caring enough about them to build a relationship with them. So they're arrested, they're released. A few weeks ago, they have a court date. And some women here from Hope Church showed up at the court date. Because these women have a name, and it's not trash. They have value, and they have worth. They have purpose. So they showed up to say, we're here. You're not alone. We're with you. We care for you. We're not going away. I think that's what restorative justice even looks like there in that situation. So what might it look like for you to do justice Maybe it's partnering with organizations like Remember New. Many of you do. Remember New is an organization that builds children's homes to prevent children from being sold into human trafficking, into the sex trade. Many of you are sponsoring kids, and blessing, remember, new with your resources. Maybe for some of you, it's like, I'm going to put my resources towards that. Maybe for some of you, it's realizing there's a need for food in our in our city, so it's providing food, so kids have food, and parents have food and meals, and maybe for some of you, it's not just even these things, but, you know, it's even the issue of refugees, and what does that look like, and how it's being debated in so many political circles, but maybe it's saying, you know what, I'm just going to move towards refugees, and I'm going to volunteer at, at a center on Triscuit avenue uh, which is run by building hope in the city and i'm going to get involved there and i'm going to watch their kids so they can go through english classes and they can learn about our culture and they can get assimilated here and become familiar here and so it's moving towards refugees but maybe for some of you it'll also be in your workplace there's injustice happening people are being treated differently maybe because of gender maybe because of skin color ethnicity Are we willing in those moments to speak up on behalf of them? Knowing you're going to get pushback. You're going to be mocked like them maybe. But you're saying this is the right thing to do. Maybe there are some people in your neighborhood that right now all the other neighbors are talking about. Are you willing to be different? What about in our schools? There's injustice happening in our schools all the time. People are, kids are being torn apart through social media. They're being torn apart with, uh, with pictures and comments and uh, things are being said about them. Maybe racial slurs are being said about them. And are we willing as middle school and high school students to say, I you know what, I'm going to stand up for that person. I'm going to say something different. I'm going to be their friend. Are we willing to do those things? It's not just about giving our money. Our money is important. Blessing these ministries that are doing all these things. But are we willing on a daily basis, a weekly basis, to do justice, to be a voice for those who no one else is speaking up for? We need our eyes, we need our hands, and lastly, our heart. And I think this is key. I think this is key. Our heart. Micah chapter 3, verse 8. It says this, but as for me, Micah says, but as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, with justice and might to declare to Jacob, his transgressions to Israel, his sin, what Micah is doing is not easy. He is, he is calling people out on their sin. He's saying what you are doing or not doing more is better said is sin, Rich when you're taking land from these poor people, when you're taking their homes, when you're overlooking injustices, it's sin. That's not an easy message to deliver. So, what drove Micah? And I think it's there in verse 8. But as for me, I'm filled with the power, with the Spirit of the Lord. It was God's Spirit, it was God's power. In him, moving him forward in the face of incredible opposition. And I think Micah, and we'll talk about this in a few weeks, we'll talk about this. Micah had this walk with God that motivated him, that spurred him on, that kept him going. Just like William Wilberforce, when everyone was saying, stop it, what are you doing? Stop that bill. Don't, in, don't put a bill like that in, in Parliament. Stop what you're doing. It's not worth it. William Wilberforce kept going. Why? Why? Because he had an active, vital relationship with God. And he knew God was a God of justice. And he said, I have to do something. And friends, I don't want to motivate us by guilt. Please don't be motivated by guilt. Guilt will only motivate us so long. When I'm told, when I'm guilted into, you know, I get to eat more Brussels sprouts or broccoli or like, okay, three days, I'll do that. But you know honestly I'm not eating much of those anymore still. So, you know like that's it's just like you should be doing you need to eat you know eat healthier And I know I should eat healthier but like guilt takes us only so long takes us so far. And we hear these topics like you could be motivated by you know like guilt and I should be doing more I should be doing more and as we should be but don't be motivated by guilt but be motivated because this is on God's heart. This is his heart. To be people like him who do justice. I love mercy and walk humbly with him. And I think the closer we walk with him, the more he will motivate us and keep us going to do this. And it's so interesting. um, N.T. Wright, who's a theologian, he said this recently. He says, We should spend as much time in prayer as we do in protest. He's not saying don't protest. But he's saying we should spend as much time in prayer as we do in protest because prayer gives what we need for mission. Intimacy with God, the heartbeat of God. We need to spend time in the word, in prayer. And and, and we need to ask ourselves, sometimes we, we become very good students of the word, which is good. But friends, is our study of the word moving us towards these issues? And I think it needs to. Are our services, gatherings, what we do as a body, are they moving us in mission? And I think it should. So we need to think about our heart. We need to be people that walk with God. I would encourage you personally to walk with God. I want to encourage us corporately to walk with God. I want to encourage us, here's even a shameless plug for Wednesday night prayer meeting. We gather every Wednesday night at 630 And we do that because we need to meet and commune with God, hear from him, and then be sent back out to do justice and to live for him, to bring hope into hopeless situations. But we need that intimacy to move us, the heart behind it. So I want us to, as we've talked about our eyes, hands, and heart, I want us to transition to thinking about communion And I think it's an appropriate response for us. And I want to ask the question, how does the cross, which these symbols, the bread and the cup, they represent Jesus' death for us? They represent Jesus, his his body and his blood. So, so how do these elements, how does the cross speak to the world of pain, poverty, and injustice? How does, why does this matter today as it relates to justice and doing justice? John Stott, who's, again, another theologian, he tells a story about, imagine, this is an imaginary story, but he made up a story about an imaginary poor man who from the slums of Brazil climbs the 2,310 feet up the mountain to so the statue of Jesus that towers above Rio de Janeiro. You're probably familiar with this, even in light of the Olympics being there recently. And the poor man gets to the top of this climb, this difficult climb, and he reaches Jesus, and he, he says these things. He says, I've climbed up to meet you. Christ from the filthy confined quarters down there and to put before you the most respectfully, in the most respectful way these considerations. Jesus, I need you to think about these things. He says, there are 900,000 of us down there in the filthy slums of that splendid city. And you, why do you remain up here surrounded by this divine glory? And he says, I want you to go down there to the slums and don't stay away from us, but live among us and give us new faith in you and in the father. He said, amen. And he went back down the mountain. John Stott asked the question, what would Christ say in response? What would Jesus say in response to this request? Would he not say that in the suffering of the cross, I did come down to live among you. And I live among you still. Jesus left heaven and became poor for us. He moved towards us to bring healing and hope to our brokenness. That's what he did. And he's still living among us. How? Through his spirit present in his people. John Stott adds his commentary here at the end. He says, we have to learn. We have to learn to climb the hill called Calvary and from that vantage ground survey all of life's tragedies. He says, the cross doesn't solve the problem of suffering, but it supplies the essential perspective from which to look at it, to see it. Sometimes we picture God lounging, perhaps dozing in a celestial deck chair, while the hungry millions starve to death. And he said, that is a terrible picture of the God which the cross smashes to smithereens. He works, he shows up through his people, through you and I, to embody Jesus, to do justice, to bring hope and healing to very broken relationships, systems, structures, workplaces, schools, neighborhoods, to do it because of how it's been done first in our lives. We do. As we think about communion today, um, what well, we think about many times, and it's appropriate, we think about sin and we think about confession, confessing sin, and that's appropriate and it's good to do it. But sometimes when we think about sin, we think of it in these contexts. It's the things I, I do that I shouldn't do, things I've done wrong, and that's, that's a good way to think about sin. But it's, it's not the only way to think about sin. We also need to think about sin as it relates to things we should be doing that we're not. And friends, I just want to honestly confess to you, justice and issues of injustice have not been a big priority for me up until probably the last few years. Because I've thought more like that's for other people to think about. That's not really the church's responsibility. That's, you know, nonprofit. They do all these other things. But like church, we have other things to take care of. But friends, this is our work. This is what we're called to. So today, as I receive these elements, I'm just confessing before you and before God that this hasn't been important to me. But now it's becoming and it is. And I believe it's becoming more and more important even for us as a church body. And even this week, I wonder, maybe with new eyes, you're going into your workplace, into your school, into your neighborhood. And maybe as you come to these elements today, it's remembering those things and saying, God, help me. Thank you for that. I'm clothed in your righteousness. I have right standing before you, but help me to bring that righteousness, that justice to the brokenness I see around me and the injustices I see around me. The elements will be up here at the front. Uh, if, you, if you can't get here to the front, if you just raise your hand, keep your hand up, one of the elders who are helping serve will get to you, uh, get the elements to you. We ask that if you are able to come forward, you receive the elements here, eat the bread, drink the cup here, and you can place it in the basket. The cup's in the basket. You can... Stand at the tables. You can take the elements and kneel here at the front if you'd like to. Our Ignite team will be leading us in a song as we sing to respond. But we just invite you to come when you're ready to receive and meet around this table. So I'm going to pray and then we'll sing together. Lord, I want to thank you for your word. You've said a lot of things today. And Lord, I just want to thank you for your word that's alive, it's active. And I'm thankful, God, that you are a God who makes things right. You made our hearts right. You've given us a new heart. Because of Jesus, we have right standing. We're clothed in the righteousness of God. And out of that gift that we have received by grace, through faith, God, what would we do? No, we don't earn our salvation in doing, but Lord, we are saved for works. We're saved to live for you. I'm thankful that you became poor. You identify with the poor. You became poor on our behalf so that in you, we might be rich. So Lord, I pray that even these moments around these tables be very meaningful for each of us, especially as it relates to this idea of doing justice. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.